Okay. It's our, it's, this is our ninth episode. Wow. Really? Yeah. 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 So we're three episodes into season two? <laughs> I, I, yeah. How does seasons work? I don't even know how that works. Well, last season was six episodes. This one's going to be five. And then we're just going to step down in a linear fashion until there's none left. Um, but I feel like seasons are based on themes. Don't you think? Okay. Let's hear that. So the first season was kind of like the WTF moments of like what is happening, like every week something new. And then this season, we kind of kicked it off with like the current climate, political climate, the protest. Um, and then also now we're back to spiking and talking about COVID because there was a moment, Ben, where people literally forgot about coronavirus. Yeah, I guess in some ways, uh, Black Lives Matter offered a respite from the, uh, the other misery that we were going through. Yeah. Like there was moments where people were like, ha ha, joke, joke, like what's COVID? Yeah. And it's like, oh, what? shit. I kind of feel like COVID's now offered a respite from all the racial uh, <laughs> issues we're having. They kind of they complement each other in a way. It's just like back to back. Exactly. <laughs> Andrew, you're early. Hello? Can you hear us? Yeah, I can now. All right. You're, you're 10 minutes early. God damn it. I'm a, I'm a, what can I tell? What can I say? Okay, we'll just go straight into it. Hi. Hi. Hi, Andrew. I can, I can log out. I can log back in. Like, That's fine. <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's a total fake thing. We just, you know, we just like just go with the, we just go with the wind or the Zoom wind. That's we have nothing to say to each other at this point, so it's good. We're glad you came. <laughs> All the topics have been flushed out. It's, it's... Pretty much. Where are you coming from? Uh, right now, I'm in the high desert of the Midwest, or the Western United States. Wow. Wow. That is not specific, but very specific. Mm-hmm. We like to get in it an, right now. <laughs> in an undisclosed location. In case the groupies find out. <laughs> the fans. The fans. Awesome. But how, how's it going? How are you? Oh, man. Um, good, I guess. Good? Like, yeah. In, there's too many contacts. Like, in what, in what way? In what way do you ask? <laughs> um, how are you today? Today is awesome. I slept in, so I started the day late. Uh. Um, that's a drag. You ever do that? It's Honestly. a drag. It's necessary. True. True. I just like, you know, you wake up. Well, I, this is what happened this morning. I woke up at eight and then I was like, I got time. And then I woke up at nine and I was like, I got time. And then I woke up at 1030. And I was like, uh oh, I don't have any time. <laughs> I gotta get up and go. <laughs> And so, yeah, so that, that experience is a minor drag, but the, the amount of sleep was amazing. That's you good. Look so, 
I've, I've got nothing to compare it to, to compare it to, because I never met you, but you look like a well-rested individual. Thank you. I, I appreciate that. I will take that. <laughs> Have you been rested or it's been quite restless the, you know, the past couple weeks, months? We're, we're earlier talking about how time during these, I don't know, during this whole lockdown has just been like some days goes by like they're years, some weeks goes by like they're hours, like it's wild. An odd, an odd way of kind of like not being consistent in the feeling of it over the past couple weeks. I feel like, I feel like I've been well rested, but always carrying something. Like there's never, I don't think there's been a day in the past couple months where it's like, get to the end of the day and you're like, all right, everything that I was carrying today, I can put away. It's like, no, that's coming to bed. Like <laughs> we're going we're gonna to be sleeping on this for a long time. Um, and even, even in a day where it's like, no, we, like we moved a lot, lot, lot went through, through the desk today. Um, there was always something that was like, no, you're going to. This is going to be on your mind for like the next three, at least. Does it visit you in your dreams sometimes? Um, I haven't actually, I haven't actually had a lot of dreams over the past couple months, um, which is odd. Well, I mean, I go, I go back and forth. Either I have like very, very vivid ones, or I don't have anything. So, I don't, I don't know if it's like. If there's too much going on, then nothing happens, and that's that's not a good sign. <laughs> or if it's the vice versa, um, yeah, I don't know. But no, nothing, nothing particularly has come in that in that way recently. Have you been experiencing any of that? I I personally have been having crazy vivid dreams. Whoa! Like the this week has been intense, intense. Like, and it's been all very high anxious. You know how it is? It's like, I have like one of those Fitbit trackers and it tracks like how many hours you slept. So I've been getting solid eight hours. And every time I wake up, I'm exhausted because of my dreams. Whoa. Yes. Like to this, this last, just last night, I, ha I dreamt that the internet went out. <laughs> but like. No, no, no. But like globally, the internet went out. Oh, no. L last night, I dreamt that I got into a fight with um, a person who it, it was like, it's like almost like traumatic dreams. It, this week has been crazy. And I don't know, I think it's like Mercury retrograde or something. But yeah, this this week has been intense. Anyways, those are my dreams. How are your dreams? <laughs> I, I got nothing. Benjamin, what, what do you got? Uh, I've, been, I've been having intense, crazy dreams, um, this, you know, just like Esther. Uh, vivid, kind of otherworldly dreams. Like, the quality of them is completely different post-COVID than what I've ever had. And I know a lot of people that have expressed the same. Um, I don't know what it is. I think maybe it's you know, trauma, I don't know, I'd like to read up on trauma and dreams, but I think we're all going through a collective trauma, actually multiple <laughs> uh, traumas at the same time. And so I think that probably does something 
clearly to your sleep cycle and then probably also to, you know, your, your dream cycle. Yeah, I would, I would bank on that. So it I sounds mean, great. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's so funny. We're like, Andrew, come on our fake podcast so we could catch up. And it's like, okay, where do we, ca- how do we catch up during this crazy time besides the fact that like, oh, well, you're still alive. So yeah. that's good. <laughs> well, gosh, when was, when was the last time that we were actually in the same place at the same time? Probably Sundance. That was like two years ago, three years ago. Right. Three years ago, Sundance. Okay, cool. So yeah, three, oh my god, three years ago Sundance is like 30 years ago. Yeah. I mean, what what is ha- like so crazy? Yeah, so yeah. At, at that time I was based in New York. It was the first trip that I ever took to Sundance. Um we were gosh. You were doing a film. I was there to get an award. Oh, right. Um, uh, the Windrider Institute, and they had they had just started working on a documentary film on me, which just got like a soft release in April of this year. So that's kind of that's kind of out and doing whatever it's going to do. That's a very bizarre experience if you've ever had a thing made about your life. And no, we're not that famous, Andrew. Oh, tell us about it. Please. Let's go right to that. Let's Don't rub it. it in, buddy. Going in? Okay. Um, so it's like a 23-minute film that tracks the in... Yeah, they, they touch on almost everything that has been a major experience in my life. And it's framed around this idea of identity formation. And kind of like, how do we know who we are? What are the things that... Uh, that we use to define ourselves and how do those things end up defining us or not. So this, the, the, the story is that when I was in high school, I was so, <laughs> so confused about who I was that I had literally opened up a notebook and wrote a list of like all the, all the labels that I would use to define myself or that I've heard somebody else use to define me. So it was like, Every nationality, um, you know, the the label of my faith, the stuff that I did. So it was like Christian, Lebanese, Canadian, American, tap dancer, a fat kid, only child, artist, like those kinds of things, right? And I would go for a week and like focus on one of those labels and see if I could be everything that I thought that that word meant. Right. And, you know, I just started crossing stuff out. <laughs> there was never, there was never one word I felt like I could completely live into. And if somebody asked me, like, so it was like, hi, my name is Andrew and I am blank. Like there wasn't one blank that I felt like, okay, well, here's the thing. And so this movie basically like tracks through all of that. My parents are from Beirut, Lebanon. They're, they're, they fled the war. They landed in Canada. I was born there. I was raised in the States. Like, and I end up, um, and, I, and I watch this, and it's only 23 minutes. And I sit there, and I'm like, 
okay, I guess that's my life. Like, <laughs> it's a little shorter than I expected, but, <laughs> you know, um, and it's just, it's a very, it's a very emotion, emotional and very odd experience to get that reflection in that way. So what was the outcome? Like, like, is there like one defining moment at the tail end of the doc where you're like, that is who I, or, you know, or is it still kind of nebulous and. No, man, I think it's a, it's a work in progress. I, I find myself, um, I find myself most at ease when I'm dancing and most kind of, uh, at peace with all those questions when I'm in motion in some way. And so I think that there's something around that for me where it's like, I don't, I don't think, at least for me, I don't think my identity is like a static thing that doesn't happen outside of an embodied experience, whatever, whatever that embodiment is. Um, and so the movie, the movie kind of leaves you with, with an offering, with a, with a, a question, not, not necessarily a question, but a, a thought. I can't tell you because that's the last scene and that would spoil the film. Like that's, the, <laughs> <laughs> that's not right. <laughs> can't do that. Are they going to do a part, part de in a, a, a couple of decades? Oh, I don't know. That'd be super weird. <laughs> <laughs> It'd be, I mean, it'd be interesting, but yeah. But know. that must have been so, I don't know, like almost liberating to be so open and having your life, like having your life seen through other people's eyes, AKA a film. Yeah. So like, it's I don't been, know. It's been wonderful. Like, thankfully the entire crew was very caring and loving and like curious and all the things that you would want to have when somebody's talking to you about like the most vulnerable aspect of your life which is like so of all the questions you're like so who are you <laughs> you're like oh let me i don't i don't know let me think about that for a second <laughs> um yeah so you know thankfully that experience was was wonderful and kind of like it's almost like if i would suspect this has never happened to me but i would suspect like if you went in for surgery and you were able to see what the doctor saw as you were being opened up that was kind of like the experience that i had because people were learning about who i was and so was i in the way that I was responding to some of their questions. Wow, um, that's deep. Yeah, and it's like, okay, well, if somebody were to ask me that question today, what would my answer be? Mm. And then you just, you say the answer and it happens to be on film. So you hope it's honest and is true in that moment. Um, Can you, but in that process of being, cause you like going through it, presumably you knew what was you know, you, what was going to be the outcome of the process, right? Were you, not at all? So was this, was this, they weren't following you around. This was just compiling your story through footage that was gathered. Is that okay? Yeah, it was, it was super organic. So I met, I met the filmmakers in 
August of, I think it was 2017, um, on a on a separate trip in Tokyo and Nagasaki, like completely different context. Um, they they got some. They were interested in like pursuing something with me. They're a documentary film company, so they're like, "You're an interesting subject. Let's see." Like, okay. I've never done this before. I don't know what this is going to mean. Right. I go into rehearsals for a solo show called Rising to the Tap, and I call up the guys. I'm like, hey, we're going to put this show up in December. You want to send a crew? Because this could be interesting. And they send a crew. And so the show kind of forms the backbone of the documentary. But a year prior, I had taken my first ever trip back to Lebanon and just in case we hired a we hired a camera guy and he followed me around for a couple of the days that I was there so we had a chunk of footage of me like going and seeing the place where my folks lived when they were first married and um you know walking walking up to uh where is it the 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 town where Khalil Gibran lives or lived um and was born in um Sherry. And like, so I had all that footage and I was like, all right, we'll just send that off to them. And we did a couple shoots where they wanted very specific interview questions to happen. Um, but nobody had an idea of like what the thing was going to be before we started. And so I was sitting, you know, there were times where I just sit around and kind of, kind of wait <laughs> get a phone call they're like uh i think we're you know we're planning a trip to new york for this other thing but we'd like to get together with you for like two hours we've got some questions cool and i wouldn't know what the questions are so how many hours of footage do you think they captured oh at least like 30. wow to 23 minutes uh, wow yeah, a lot got left behind. But do you feel like it was a good representation of your life and did you justice? Okay, that's good. And and I think <laughs> I think I always I always hope that my life can be uh, like a witness or a, a testimony to the things that I'm attempting to pursue. Mm. And I think. I think posing the question of kind of who am I, particularly in um, in kind of the shift that we're all experiencing, uh, is timely. It's just like, and I, I we didn't plan this. <laughs> like none of this, none of this was planned. So it just, I my hope is that asking that question and then hope you know we have a couple things in the works to provide some additional resources in terms of like, well, how do you navigate that question once you opened up Pandora's box um, can be helpful to people who are having to navigate that. So I'm, what I'm wondering is, you know, you'd said that in the past you had identified yourself as a number of like very objective things, right? Canadian, Christian, tap dancer, Lebanese, so how would those answers, you know, what would the answer to that question be now, you know, if someone were to ask you, who are you? 
I would say that I'm adopted child of God. Okay. Talk about that. I'd love to hear about that. Oh. Good answer. <laughs> Is uh, it adopted though? Come on. Yeah, well, okay, so here's the thing. If if you say and I think this is one of the beautiful things ab about that idea is that if you say that there's only one begotten son, if, like if you believe in that tradition, then everybody's adopted. Like everybody else is adopted. And that, that says nothing about how much you're loved or how much you can be loved, right? And that's, that's the, that becomes the switch, right? Because if, if you are adopted into a family, there's almost... Uh, at least from from my limited experience in my faith there's like more love there than the assumption of oh yeah that's my dad he's he's gonna protect me he's gonna care for me like that's my mom she's gonna love on me like those things are there and it's assumed by blood if there's no assumption by blood then all you have is the commitment of the relationship in in whatever that looks like because there's no there's no ability to take it for granted um so has that been a um a, a relationship that's been with you for a long time or is it a relationship that you formed more recently yeah it's it's been with me for a long time um my folks are both uh believers of the like the protestant christian tradition um in that way but they would they would fight both of those labels and like be like no it's like it's a personal relationship that's what it is like we believe in the text we trust the experience and the tradition equally right and so i grew up i didn't grow up going to church every sunday i grew up going to church easter and christmas because my folks being um, not in a community of like people, you know, by the time I started having memories, I was three years old in Alexandria, Virginia, right? And there isn't a large Lebanese community around us and we're not going to Lebanese dinners and parties like every week. So, you know, we, I, I remembered going and trying to find church communities and it just not being a thing that lasted. And I would never know why and I would never really poke at it. I was, you know, I was a little kid. But uh, when I was nine, we went to, uh, we went to a small church for a Christmas Eve, like midnight service and candlelights and whatnot. And I think it was before the candlelight thing happened, the pastor... Or might have been after the the pastor did a call right if you want uh if you want jesus christ to be your lord and savior repeat after me and he says says the prayer um and i'm nine years old and i'm like jesus christ yes i want him in my life and I bow my head and i say the prayer and i tell my parents i was like said the thing and they look at me and they're like Oh, okay. <laughs> That's, you know, nine-year-old nine Andrew's, like, affirming. Um, and that, so that was the start. And then it's it's been this very interesting, like, journey of, well, 
okay, so what does it mean? Right? How do you how do you frame your life around this particular belief that you can't see until you start seeing? What what does that mean? What so are you are you saying that the mere act of faith then rewards you with certain you know, you get revelation as a result of the faith? Is that what you're saying? I, I think the, the way that I would describe it is that so there there is this idea that faith in itself is a gift, right? It's something that you receive because talk to a lot of people and I would even in my own life, if I tried to force myself to believe in something, like it doesn't really function. Right. But at some point there's like a door that opens or a thing that switches or a click that happens and you're like, oh, I see that now. And so that that moment to me is a gift. It's something that I can't do under my own strength. So whatever whatever that means or however that functions, it's it's something that's being acted upon me. But now, you were you were sorry to cut you off, but you were almost primed to receive the gift as opposed to these gifts are constantly being shown. It's just that you were just Bar blocks and barriers and and that sort of thing true yeah with right. with six of my family by all means yeah um and so i think i think there is there is definitely this this idea that like the the analogy is all often kind of what's the soil like and then you plant the seed yeah and the, seed, the gift but the soil is something that you can you can prepare or it can dry out or like there's things that that happen there what if you're in an arid desert <laughs> i i think it's like i i don't know <laughs> right. you gotta move ben you gotta move i'll explain no i'm just kidding <laughs> yeah, i'm 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 curious like okay and i i should say this. i'm i'm not one of those folks that's like if you don't believe in this, then things are going to happen. Like, I have no idea what's going to happen. Like that, all, all the stuff on account of like the, 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 like you should, because the only should, because for me is, I don't know. I, I don't know how, I don't know how other folks live without a revelation of love. And if that's, that's my baseline. Right. Um, but love can manifest itself in so many ways. For you, it's manifested in a, in a pretty specific way, it sounds. Yep. And, why, and so I guess the, what's interesting is how some people, it, it, you know, it, it results in kind of a, a life of faith or a life of belief and father or something else. But is, is it all one and the same or is there an insight that, that you that only by a relationship with you know God or a higher power in a more traditional sense that you can you can get that specific experience. What do, what do you think about that? I think I think if 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 one believes in a spiritual context, right? So I I tend to believe that everybody believes something. So the language of like having faith or not having faith is really problematic. It's like, you believe in something, what do you believe, 
right. let's start the conversation from there. Um, the, the flip side to that is that if you, if, if one believes in a spiritual context, then everything that's going on happens in that context. Cause that's the spiritual context is encapsulating of the physical one, right? If you don't believe in a spiritual context, then you have a physical one. And so they're not, they're not mutually exclusive, right? It's just a different framing of the experience of life. Right. And I, I think, I think we do like, there's a lot of damage that happens when our, any individual specific revelations, whatever they might be like, and revelation for me is like something that was revealed. So they're like, Hey, I get to see this. Do you see this? No. Cool. Let's exchange notes about what we see because nobody I think has a clear vision of everything. Right. So, you know, it's like, it's like that elephant analogy where everybody's blind and they're touching one half, one part of it. And somebody's like, I feel the leg of a table or I feel like the hair of a horse. You're like, the whole thing's an elephant. <laughs> so in, in that way, I think the, the human experience is kind of like that. Right. Right. Um, well, even the way we talk about it, right. It, it's, so it's so funny because when you start talking about, you know, I wasn't brought up with the faith of Christianity. Um, and so, you know, when I hear, you know, words expressed in, in the faith, you know, I naturally kind of, I don't tune now because I'm interested to hear what people think and believe, but, but then I naturally feel like, well, there's a separation between us because I, I don't understand that specific manifestation of the, of, of, but, but what you said earlier really is the baseline, which is coming from a place of love or, or of some you know, cosmic energy, right? That just for you manifests itself through a belief in love in Jesus Christ. And for me, you know, in a way where I, that language may not make as much sense, but we're, you know, we're still both touching the elephant. Yeah. Yeah, I would, I would, I would agree with that. I think the, the thing, the thing that, that changes with specific revelations is the specificity of it. Right. And so there, there is, there's a tension there that I, that I recognize and that I continually try to undercut because language fails all the time around this stuff. And so there, there is definitely a tension um, around, you know, someone who has a specific uh, vision or someone who has a, a more kind of like cosmic energy, universal, uh, what is it like universal narrative or narrative of the universe um and the thing that comes to my mind right now is like some people need a specific thing to get to that understanding and right. some people don't and there's i mean there are a number of questions that i have for god whenever i get to like be in the presence and say okay these are my questions um and and one of them is uh, like the, the, the scattering of the revelations, right? It's like, all right, if you, if you want 
everybody to know you or if you're like continually in like in the development of relationship with people what gives <laughs> like and that's that's just that's it's a question it's not something that is like that i trip over myself on but it is a question but you were just saying yeah i mean i was gonna say like even early on about how you had a whole running list of like um adjectives to kind of describe your identity i mean i think that's pretty much what a personal journey in faith is there's all of these kind of like adjectives that you kind of have to like dissect and unbox and but ultimately the ultimate thing is love right that's like if if you believe in some sort of higher power you know entity um and you know god is love love is god that is kind of that universal you know foundation but i mean i don't i mean for me personally like i grew up in the church like both my my, my dad was a pastor my mom's a missionary talk about somebody living in pure faith my mom has no idea what she what she's doing like in an hour <laughs> let alone like a year she's like in the middle of cambodia now like at like some bible school that she found like it's like she's insane and like every time i talk to people about my mom and they're just like so she doesn't have a job she's like what is she and i'm like yep that's my mom and it's like it's wild it's crazy she is crazy any normal person looks at her and they're like she's fucking nuts and i'm like and that's exactly people with true faith they're nuts because there's literally reality does not work in their favor like it's so like she's just like She's like, oh, you should come to Cambodia. She like bought a chicken farm for $1,200 that some person gave her $1,200 in the mail. Literally every day is a miracle for her. And I'm just like, I want to, I want what you were like on when I turned like 50. Because <laughs> I have no clue. But, but these are living examples of people. And it's not like, I wouldn't say it's like particularly Christianity brings that. Like, I think any body that is able to experience this like surrender of whatever higher power is going to experience miracles every day of their life you know so whatever that was my mom Ben's always like Esther's mom always has to get a shout out in these like episodes it's been a couple of it's been a couple of episodes since she's gone on yeah what up Esther's mom she gets a camp (laughs) She gets Wi-Fi in Cambodia in the middle of the jungle. And I'm like, how are you WhatsApping me right now? She's like, I don't know. Just God like wants me to talk to you. So I get Wi-Fi. And I'm like, oh, God. God and Wi-Fi. Yeah, man. That's amazing. It's wild. Life is wild. But anyways, yeah. Yeah, well. That's I it. Sit with that for a second, man. That's like. I don't it's know. So, it's, yeah. it's so it's so funny because it's also like like I almost want to yell at her <laughs> because she's Why? so she's so reckless sometimes. Yeah. I'm like she's not young. She's like almost 70. She's like traveling by herself. Like, you know, there's like moments where like again, like you might get robbed, you might get kidnapped. Like, you know, you're not in like 
Paris. Like you're like in the middle of like a third world country, you know, and like she might have spotty cells. Like there's moments where I'm just like, I'm the mother here. And I'm like, I'm like, what, where's my mother? Like, you know, it's like kind of crazy. And I get mad. Like I'm like, what, what the hell is, why is she doing this? Why is she doing this? But then she has literally so much peace and I think what you were saying about like you know you always have this burden you know that's like kind of like when you it's like at night you always have this she when I see her and you feel it she doesn't have any of that which is something I think that's like the ultimate goal right is this like such deep peace that it's just like like just joy it's almost like ch- like childlike joy that you're just like, so that's like, you can't really be too mad at her because you're just like, oh, okay, fine. You know, because it's like, what? It's like sends me a photo of a chicken the other day and I'm like, what the fuck is, what is this? And then she goes, can you Venmo me $10? I'm like, what? For what? And she's like, God will bless you. Give me $10. I'm like, all right, fine. She has Venmo. Like, it's like, what the hell? Anyways, more about my mom. Less about my mom. <laughs> that's, that's priceless, man. Yeah, I think, like, getting getting to that, I'm not even getting to that, but, like, having that experience of childlike joy and kind of ultimate peace in every moment is, yeah. I've, I've gotten... I think I've gotten glimpses, but it's never it's never been a consistent thing. I haven't had one of those in years. Yeah, I I mean it might it might make sense. It's like a good question to be like, all right, so why? <laughs> like, why, what's what's the thing that isn't that isn't allowing me to to enter into that space? Um. I don't know. I think I think if I were to if I were to think about that, I think like I've got a I've got a ton of like high achievement anxiety stuff. Yeah. Ambition, man. Oh, it's, it's the it's, ego, it's, man. It's the it's ego. It's the ego. It's the ego. Yeah, and I'm like, eh, no. <laughs> I've kind of gotten to a point in my life where I'm like, nah, no, it's cool. like doing this over here in this corner of the world like that's enough but i mean you've been in the spotlight for so long andrew that like i'm sure that ambition of like performance and hitting the marks and like achievement 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 like maybe that's what it is it's just like these like not i wouldn't call those trauma because i have a lot of ambition and i don't consider that traumatic but there are moments where you you do kind of like wake up in the middle of the night and be like, oh my God, like, what am I doing with my life? Like, I have to do this, I have to do that. So, yeah, yeah I, I don't know. In in my experience, the ambition has been a little bit more insidious. Like it's never, it's, it hasn't, it hasn't primarily been career driven, which might be odd to say publicly, but I've always been more like if I have to have to list priorities, I'd always been more um, more focused on kind of the the culture of the room that I was in charge of than the product that came out of that room. What do you mean? Um, Expand on that. 
in the in the dance world and in the tap dance world specifically, uh, you you know if you're if you're building a show or you're you're building pieces, you're going to have a number of other people in the room. Every one of them has a personality. The accumulation of those personalities and the way that you guide the space develops a culture. Right. That regardless of what happens outside of that room, when people enter into that room. This is the way that we relate to each other. This is how we value one another. This is our our communal aim, um, and it's so so it's like a a little petri dish of culture making, um, and that's really been for me kind of I would say like the majority of where my focus and my work has been, gosh, over like the past fifteen years, maybe. Um, and, but in, as a tap dancer, like you're in that room to create a product and that product has to ship and it's got to sell. And so it's an, it's been an interesting uh, journey for me to kind of navigate having the culture of the room be the priority and then hoping that if you make the healthiest culture, you get the best product. Which so is, is it more of a leadership thing for you? Uh, I, I don't like the language of leadership because I feel like that develops a power dynamic in the room right away. Uh, and there's always going to be a power dynamic if you are the one inviting other people in. So yes, it is a matter of how I navigate the position that I'm in, but I've found that if you're in, if I've if I've been in a leadership position, the the healthiest room that I can create is one where I'm not like my position of authority is not amplified, it's undercut, so that everybody else in the room can grow into positions of individual authority. And leading from behind. Mm-hmm. Or just leading from within. Yeah. You know, because it's it's not like I abdicate the role. It's that I allow everybody else in the room to know that they could be in the front at any point in time, right? And and the only the only thing that's put me in the front is a particular knowledge set and a particular circumstance. And so I think. Yeah, how did we get here? We're talking about ambition. ambition. Oh, yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, I, when, you're, when you're saying that, you know, you're afraid of saying things publicly, this isn't publicly. There's no one listening. Right, right. <laughs> sure. Except for Esther's mom. Right. When she gets Wi-Fi. <laughs> when she gets Wi-Fi. <laughs> if you Venmo her. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yes, this is true. Um, yeah, no, I don't know. Ambition. Well, I think the culture in the room is pretty important, you know, because that's kind of also like you're setting the tone for, yeah. like you said, this end product. But, you know, <laughs> what is deemed as successful, which is what, like, market, capitalism, you know, the dollar never really equates to a good culture. Let's are we are we getting into capitalism now? It's the 
yeah. the weekly the weekly discussion on capitalism per Esther's uh, requirements. I'm also a co- like a secret communist, clearly. <laughs> I mean, so I don't know. Yeah, okay. Is so I'll 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 lay bare kind of where where I land on this because <laughs> it's worth the dive. Um, I feel like I feel like a market culture is excessively unhealthy. Right, they're they're especially for someone who's in a cultural craft, right? <laughs> like we do this thing, we have to damn make, artist <laughs> to make it in a way that you know the the public, whoever are buying public is can can see it, can like it, can enjoy it. Tap dance has been influenced by the market for like a hundred years, a long time. Like it made the transfer from folks doing it for fun to folks doing it for a paycheck very, very early. Uh, and so I, I find it really, really challenging to find a way to like engage in the craft without or with a focus on what it does to a person, not what, do, not what it does to a ticket buyer. Because those are two yes. different, they're two different avatars, right? Totally. And I, I, I feel very, very thankful to have opportunities to think in that way. Because <laughs> there, there are other train, training situations where if you came up a particular way in tap dance land, it was like, you're going to get the gig. We're mm. going to make sure that you get the gig. We're going to train you how to get the gig. And I came up in a way where it was like, you're going to know the people. Mm. I really don't care if you get the gig. <laughs> hmm. I don't care if you do this thing right and enjoy how, it. How's that sustainable, though? I mean, obviously for you, it's working out, but for the majority of that, you know? It's, it's not sustainable as a market thing, right? And right. it comes up it, because that, that way of thinking is an oral tradition which has which has no it's it's either valued in the market as like exorbitant cost right if you take if you take the number of hours that it takes a traditional craftsman to make a traditional piece that they would make for their people just in the course of living the number of man hours equate to like thousands of dollars right for a small piece uh and that's why there's no price on it in that communal culture. It's just something that you do over the course of living. So if you take that in the dance world, like there's, there's, no, there's no sustainability for the upkeep of an oral tradition in the market. There's an upkeep of an oral tradition in the community of people that value that tradition. Tap dance is a really interesting thing because it bounces back and forth to and from the market so often that, you know, the conversation about what the tap dance community is has been going on for like 40 years. Like I came into the community, which, which would mean like I started to get to know the people, the, like the, the intergenerationally in like the early 90s 
and the conversation about the tap dance community and what it is has been happening since then. And it's like, it's just this interesting microcosm of like, all right, so what defines a community and what defines people engaged in a particular thing that might not have market value? But, but within the community, you know, there are probably still thought leaders and people that are more respected than others. And so the, the ones that are, are they the ones that have taken sort of the non get the gig route and have kind of stayed true to the, you know, more of the kind of, you know, getting to know the people, the community aspect of the, of it. So it's, so it's interesting because uh, you get to the sustainability question or the, the livelihood question comes up really quickly. Right. Uh, and there are, there are multiple uh, trajectories in the tap dance community that will get you to notoriety. So if you write a book, you'll be known. If you're famous, you'll be known. Um, or if you trained under someone who was known. Those are, those are like, those are at least three ways to, to get to a position of thought leadership. Now the challenge is t tap dance is not a monoculture, right? There are many different approaches. There are many different potential narratives. And so if you've written a book or if you've gotten to a place where people know you, or if you've trained under a particular teacher, you might have very different views of what this community is. And so you have thought leaders who are pulling in different directions or who are disagreeing with each other in public. My God, it sounds like a religion. Yeah, totally. <laughs> and it's, it's like, it's a microcosm of that and it's embodied, right? Cause it's a physical practice, which makes it all the more interesting for me. Cause you travel around and you see people in different countries dancing differently, but calling what they do the same thing and tracing to different teachers and to different influences. And then, you know, I, I lived through the advent of YouTube and got to see how the, the actual physical dancing shifted around the world once, once that happened. And it's just, yeah, it's, it's an interesting, it's an interesting thing to be able to like step back and just observe for a moment and then also have a personal practice in it. Where do you sit in that community? What, how are you, are you, you know, is there factionalism? I mean, it sounds like there's factionalism and are you, are you part or do you, do you kind of float above it? I, I think, I don't know. I think I float in between all this stuff. Like I don't like to get into, there's a big debate that roams around, around like when and how tap dance started who owns the thing, like those conversations, I try and stay away from. Um, not because I don't necessarily have thoughts on it, but because I wasn't there and I can't, you know, if I wasn't there, I'm not going to talk about it. That's fair. Yeah, it's like, <laughs> we can imagine, I can compare you know, the trajectory of tap dance to like what I know about flamenco or katak or other percussive dances that have popped up over, you know, in other areas of the world. But I know my teachers, I know like their process in the craft. I can, 
I can introduce that to a person and track them through kind of the discoveries that they're going to go through as they engage with the percussive dance like tap dancing. Um, but I'm not going to fight over who owns it. It's like, because I think that that under it, it has the potential to undercut anybody else's contribution. But also you're seen as like an educator, you know, in, in that kind of scene. And don't get me wrong, I'm not like an expert in the TAP community, but knowing that you've had like these major platforms like TED, like the conference and, and a lot of your work is like based on how you have, you know, done like, you know, speeches and lectures in China and like different countries and so forth that like, you know, yeah. Only Hong Kong, but that's another. Okay. okay. <laughs> Sorry, but you know what I mean. It's not. It's not like you're the Gregory Hines protege that went to Broadway, and it's like the Tony Award-winning choreographer guy. No, right. it's, it's definitely different for me. Not to say you can't be that, but you know. But that's a market question. Right. Right. It's like. I remember when I was very young, kind of having it in my head that if the story isn't something that I want to tell, I don't want to be involved. Whereas if you want to make it in the theater world, like you take the gig. And so it's right. it, it throws you into a different trajectory when you start saying no to things. Or, or just kind of removing yourself from the possibility of those things on, a, on account of, you know, whatever, whatever stubbornness I have. Well, I mean, I think like everyone is having to reevaluate that now. The question that you've been asking yourself throughout your career due to COVID, I mean, the performing arts industry is, you know, it's just over, you know, like it's, I mean, I've read crazy statistics like dance companies, like renowned dance companies have are having to fold, like you can't tour, you know, people can't gather, like it's like a whole thing where the art of performance needs to have like, okay, well, how does the market and the culture play into this current situation that we're in, well, you know? Yeah. I think it's going to be it's going to be really interesting to see where where the market survives and what kinds of expression survive either inside the market or outside of it. Right, you're going to you're going to I remember I went to I went to Nashville once and I had a I had a conversation with with a dancer there um and they, it was my first visit to Nashville. I was curious, right? Popping town, amazing music city. Everybody does, like, you go to any house and there's a musician who lives there, right? And I'm talking to this dancer to figure out, all right, well, what's the dance scene in Nashville like? And their line to me was, and I'll never forget this, uh, Nashville is a horrible place for dance. And I was like, wait, why would you say that? And they said, um, because everybody thinks that they can dance. 
And so it's a horrible place to try to convince people that they have to come out, buy a ticket to watch other people dance if they want to take part in dancing, <laughs> right? Because it was still a place where you go home after work, there's some instrument hanging on the wall, somebody picks it up, starts picking, and somebody's going to get up and dance, right? And so that to me was like the straight line between a culture of dance, like a community that still danced just because they did. And this, this market version of, if I want to take part in dancing, I have to pay a fee to enter into a space and I'm actually gonna sit down and watch other people do the thing, <laughs> right? It's not even the party thing where it's like you go to the club and you listen to a DJ and you're dancing. It's, the, it's like the next step where in order to partake, only the people who are so good at this thing should be the ones that are able to, and they're the ones on the stage, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sit and I'm going to watch. Well, I think that's like the levels, right, of artistic appreciation. Like, I, you know, I could say, I, I can draw, I can paint, but so, you know, what does that me equate to going to a museum, per se, and seeing what's, whatever's on a gallery wall? Um, so, yeah, I think it's more about training or, like, educating the culture to say that like okay there's levels to this like of course you're an amazing dancer but there is an ecosystem that you need to support for more amazing dancers to pay rent or you know but it's it's strange to me because it seems like you know in communities where you know there's where art is revered right there isn't this myopia it's like oh you know like I'm going to, you know, I appreciate other artistic and, you know, people performing at a high level in another medium. So it's weird to me that in Nashville, where you have such great musicians that they would just have that approach. It's strange. I, I think there's, I mean, this was just one dancer's perspective, right? So yeah. I don't know if, if that was the whole thing for the city, but I think there's in, in, in the arts, well, I can, I can speak in the dance world. Because this is this is now beginning to be to be deconstructed a little bit. There is um, there has been a heightened appreciation for the classical arts, right? So ballet in ballet and modern dance in the dance world tend tended to have um, more infrastructure and more institutional support around them, especially than something like tap dancing. Right. And so if you if you enter into so like dance in in the in America, I guess I can say so this is I'm going to be treading very lightly here for a moment. Um, has like many, many pockets of cultural expression, right? There are tons of people in little places doing things that will never make it to institutional support never make it to a stage it's not designed for that right in in the in the basic communal uh infrastructure if there wasn't a market around dancing you'd have everybody doing like a little bit of the thing and then you'll have fewer and fewer people as you go up the chain of like predisposition and ability and skill set you know the the better dancers in the community would be highlighted and they'd be shown off and you know, at every 
ritual celebration or festive celebration like the the dancers those denoted as like these are these are our dancers they'd be they'd be trucked out in front of everybody else but that would never mean that nobody else could right it just meant that those were the ones that have the the most skill or that are uh kind of like meant to be the dancers in the in the vernacular like um and i and i think what gets lost when you have a when you have a market-based ecosystem is you have tons of people because everything is specialized that say well no 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 i don't i don't dance i can't dance because they see dancing as only this very high skill level thing that happens in a very formal setting um or it's i go out to the club and i don't know what i'm doing where you know the hip hop originated in house parties like those dances originated in a communal setting without like the formalized training of a dance school but with tons of technique to them and so it's like this cognitive dissonance that happens in in the in the market space i feel that pre- prevents people from engaging in or or feeling like it's either i'm super good and this is what i do for a living or i don't know what i'm doing and i just do this for fun or i just don't do it at all right it's like the hobbyist versus the professional yeah right and bobby in nashville they're doing it as a hobby you're saying they're they're dancing and but but strangely they're then or maybe as a result of that they're not viewing it as mar- as viable viable in, from a marketplace perspective right well, let's be honest dance is like <laughs> out of all of the art forms it's been it's so hard for a dancer unless again you're like i don't know name me like a i can't even name you like a you know Channing Tatum. <laughs> oh no. Yes. Exactly. It's easy, easy for him. Yeah, exactly. Case in point. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the dancer's life, the dancer's life is difficult. Um, what Bunny Briggs, who was a, a dancer from like the thirties and forties, uh, told me once he said, congratulations, you've chosen the hardest road. I'm like now, and I was well. I was in deep at this point. So I was like my late twenties, maybe when I finally met him and started started chatting with him. Um, and I'm like, why would you tell me that? Because you know, can't you just tell me something encouraging, <laughs> please? Uh, and he said, well, you know, of all the of all the spots in entertainment, dance is the hardest, and of all the dances, tap dance is like the lowest so you're gonna have the hardest rope but like all right i'll buy that <laughs> was he right? right to a degree yeah i mean i feel i feel really i feel really just blessed and happy and you know i've never i've never felt like a burden about being a tap dancer um but it has not been easy yeah it's okay. <laughs> it's like it's hard labor. 
Um, I, you know, I'm like obviously obsessed with Ted. Yeah. The main conference. And I know you're part of that weird Ted Illuminati click. You already told me this. Okay. So what the hell are these Ted fellows thinking about this whole crisis? I feel like the brain trust that is Ted, you know, what's, what is happening? So the, to give uh, to give some context for the people who are not listening to this, <laughs> <laughs> the TED Fellows are a group of, I guess they'd be described as like mid-career, uh, kick-ass, like taking names and doing the work people from around the world who are in every every field possible from, you know, activists who, uh, you know, need to worry about their identity being disclosed to artists, to science researchers, to builders and architects, like ev everywhere. Tap uh, dancer. Tap dancers. Uh, and they are, they are some of the most, like, passionate, thoughtful, trying to fix things, people that I have ever been around. And, you know, the, the joke, so the, the fellowship is actually that you go to one of the main conferences and you, you give a small talk there. And so every main conference, they have a class of fellows that goes. Um, obviously, that's not happening this year, but every time we would, you know, the, the class would come together everybody would feel like they're an imposter because they hear everybody else's story and they think like, who am I to be here? Because that dude's amazing. Like the class that I was in, there was somebody who started a helicopter, like medvac company in Western Africa because one of their family members like passed away because they couldn't get to medical attention right away. So they just like, we're gonna fix the thing. And they learn how to fly helicopters and like get the thing to happen. And another one um, like started a, a school for like to train people on death row in Uganda how to become lawyers so that they could defend themselves. You know, and here I am a tap dancer speaking on the same stage, you know, five minutes away from either one of these. And I'm like, I'm just gonna shuffle step a little bit right here and talk about like, <laughs> because these guys are changing the world and I'm just, you know, if you want to cry, you can cry. Just, I'll cry with you. Like, it's cool. So those, those are the fellows. Um, and I think in, in this context right now, they're all, you know, they, they butt up against the fractures in society all the time. So the, so the stuff that we're experiencing on a grander scale is stuff that the fellows as a class are always in. And we're always kind of going like, yeah, like that's, that's the problem, that's the problem, that's the problem, that's the problem. Um, and so I feel like if there, if there is a way to describe it, we're kind of maybe not to speak for the whole group, but it's like there's a little bit of vindication to say, yeah, like 
no, there's some of us that we've been working on this a long time, whatever this actually is, right? And then there's, there are others that the fracture that they're working in isn't being exposed yet. And so it's- like What? Yeah, man. I'm they're, getting scared. <laughs> well, it's like when, when you look at, when you look at global systems and you look at kind of the, the power structures that are in place that continually try to reinforce their position of power, like even, even when, you know, okay, you're trying to defund the police or you're trying to shift, uh, shift the power structure in terms of politics or like wherever the work is, there is, there is often a larger power structure that's there that is also trying to reinforce itself. And it's like, okay, you want to do that in that corner? Cool. You can do that so long as we stay around that corner. Right. And whether it's, I mean, there's, you can probably find narratives around global philanthropy and kind of the, the global food line and like every system that's built that consolidates power is one that ideally we should um, divest power from, right? And spread and, and distribute the power from it. So, because we should, we should know by now <laughs> that centralized systems are fundamentally weak, right? Whatever that centralized system is. This is where Esther talks about Bitcoin. Sweet. Wait, are, are you saying is it because of the centralized of power? Yeah. So it's accumulation of power. It's like too big to fail type of mentality. Yes, but it's not only too big to fail, it's it's too big to know. Right? One of one of the one of the yeah. defenses against against the establishment of a federal government in the US when they had the like the the Federalist and Anti-Federalist papers, one of the one of the uh, challenges against federalizing, against having the central, the central power is that the people making decisions in a central place are too far away from the people who that decision is going to affect to really be able to know what's going to happen. Or in, you know, in, in the words of, uh, in another way of saying it, it's like they don't have skin in the game. They can make a choice and that choice goes down and they're like, oh, okay. And maybe, you know, whatever impact takes time to get back to them. And in that moment, people are either thriving or they're hurting or like whatever the impact is. It's just too far away. And so... But isn't that what laws are? Essentially just these universal overarching things that we abide to right that it is very far away but as a you know the social construct that we all have to obey by certain rules for it to function yeah but it, it is it, that way and, and people those systems are not the larger systems where you don't have the, the kind of the subsidiarity or the closeness between decision-making and those affected by decision-makers that, that structure those structures eventually topple right and then you look at it in this country 
um, you know, w with this, you know, with the last election, you look at uh, Brexit, right? The idea that you have an EU that's so far away from the needs of, of its constituents. So yeah, it's, it's, you know, these systems do eventually topple. The question is, how do you, I don't know, how do you preempt that? Because there's so much dis displacement, there's so much destruction when those systems topple. Yeah, the, the 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 thing that comes to my mind is like the way the way nature functions, where you have you always have something coming up from the ground, right? You because I think I think the systems topple because trust breaks first, right? And once you have a fracture in trust, if trust is established and it's and it's functioning, then you can have distance, right? It's challenging but it, it can function for a time. Once trust breaks, then like it, it dissolves very, very quickly um, because you can have any intermediary come in between the people who are, uh, if you take politics, the people who are governed and, the, and, and those who are governing, anybody can come in between and start to affect the relationship. Um, but if it's, if it's, if it's tied to nature, then, you know, the root, the, the people who are governed are always uplifting people who they trust through a series of, I don't know, like larger and larger responsibilities in terms of their relationships. So ideally somebody starts from like, okay, you're going to be on the council for my block or my building. And then because I trust you there, and you kind of rise up in that governing structure. Okay, we're going to put you to the municipal council, and then we're going to put you to the city council, and then you know maybe you become mayor of the town, and then and if you go, you know if you can travel that as you know quickly because you're maybe you're good at what you do and it's recognized, then those are the people who ultimately should be shipped off to the central government because their communities really trust them. Don't you think power will corrupt? Because people are just stupid. <laughs> I think- Not if there's accountability or there's transparency. Yeah, I think transparency really helps. And I think people need to know how to say no. But also just the inherent like, like flaws of human nature. Like once they kind of seize power you know it it's it's very hard unless you have a very strong strong solid foundation of who you are and your beliefs and you know i just feel like there's so many people that i've seen that i've trusted kind of rise in the ranks based on me relinquishing my power to them because i trusted them and then they completely abuse it like, yeah, based on you know especially when you're on a condo board <laughs> oh <laughs> is that a personal uh experience then well you know that that's just in a way it's interesting right because you'd think eh, condo board schmondo board but in a way that's where you know those decisions are actually the most consequential for the constituents involved because it's so talk about proximity Right. That's like, and those, you know, I've never seen more ugliness in terms of politics than on a condo board. And it kind of 
to what you're saying, Andrew, now it kind of makes sense why it's. Yeah. It's like you're, you're, you're in there with like people's livelihoods and the way that they want to live and like all the choices that affect, yeah, affect the person deeply. And how loud your neighbor can play their music at 10 at night. Yep. And some God. of that stuff goes back to, goes back to the identity question, right? It's like if, because we, we, we find ourselves in like condos, blocks, um, you know, anytime you're living in extreme proximity to other people, there's going to be a multicultural situation, right? More often than not, more recently. And yeah, loud music is a thing in certain cultures. Loud talking is a thing in certain cultures, right? I've, you know, my folks are from Lebanon, like, we talk with hands and like if there's a thing there's always emotions involved and it always gets out and you know if it's a thing in the family and and the thing comes up at like 10 o'clock at night like half of the conversation is shh the neighbors <laughs> You're like, and that's that it's a cultural thing and it and it and it, it's like if you try and change that there's like something really really deep in deep down that's like no, but this is how we are and this is what we do and this is how we need to like do to do this thing. Yeah, it's a it's a trip. Yeah, cultures are amazing though. Speaking of just like the different so many cultures, so many subcultures. I mean, that is just like how I think race beyond is like it's really just like who identifies in your culture regardless of like your gender or your ethnicity it's like there is specific cultures that people you know like ted ted is a culture it's just like this thing that like people are really into that they identify oh you listen to a ted talk that's so cool like you immediately have these like shared languages shared experiences it's a culture so yeah, I think it's I think it's interesting and one of the challenges that I see moving forward is like normally culture is assumed, right? Or it's or it's something that we end up in that isn't articulated from the outset. So the language that you find from people who listen to TED Talks, similar language, but nobody ever talked to one another and said this is how we're going to talk to each other exactly it's it's like an adaptation to be able to be inside that group mm. right and i and i wonder moving forward as as we either affirm or try to navigate the multiple cultural identities of everybody that's like trying to talk with one another what are the things that we're going to have to agree on so that those conversations in the navigation don't continually butt up against um like the but this is the way that i do this period end of sentence end of conversation point power well it's yeah. down to power I don't, I don't know man i feel like there's a way there, there should be language or should be an agreement of like at least mutual respect in the in the personal 
navigation of that stuff that can help with systems i have no idea those those <laughs> things are huge <laughs> well clearly this podcast is inspired by ted because <laughs> we talk big picture ideas um we're like pretty much nearing our 60 minutes here sweetness and i we we kind of end always with a barrage of like really silly questions but in this particular episode i only wanted to ask one question to both of you guys okay are you guys ready and it's not a lightning round because it's a you know you could think about this deeply okay Andrew you can answer first since this whole I don't know what we're calling it the quarantine lockdown COVID can you share with us a spiritual experience that you had during these three months Oof. Yeah, this is not a light question. Um, you could have multiple ones too. I feel like the whole thing has been a spiritual experience. Like, so I had to. I I left the city that I was in right before the lockdown happened i landed where i'm at right now and i have you know you have no idea what the next day is going to bring or not um yeah i so okay i haven't i can i can share with you the a spiritual experience that my dad had on account of me. Does that work? Yes. Okay. That's a good one. Okay. So, um, I've been, I've been, I've been navigating some, some things at work. Uh, and it's it, like open door, closed door kind of things. And, you know, my folks and I are really close. So we talk a lot. And a couple days ago, uh, my dad said, I got to share with you, like, I had a dream. And I was like, okay, like, tell me, what's the dream? And he said, I had a conversation with God. It's like, okay. <laughs> he said, well, in the dream, like, I walk up to God and I ask him. He said, like, Andrew's going through this thing. You open the door and now it looks like you're closing the door. Like, what gives? And God started to respond and my dad said, well, like, I don't, I don't remember his first response because I jumped in and I interrupted him. And I said, but you did this before. And like you had, you've opened doors and then you, you shut them again. And my dad said, well, then I stopped and I listened and I, and God responded. And he said, well, like Andrew wanted to do all those things. So I let him. Now he's going to, he's going to find out that he doesn't have to do those kinds of things anymore and he'll be fine. And I was like, okay. 
<laughs> just in terms of like the the turmoil that can come when uh, when work that you're trying to do starts to close or feels like it's not functioning anymore. Um, yeah, that was that was a very a very clear like you're gonna be okay. Like whatever happens, you're gonna be okay. Did you know that? Or did you just find that out now because your dad told you because God had told him? I had a I had a sense, but that was definitely confirmation. So that that is a spiritual experience, vicariously, you know, as your dad is the conduit for it, I guess. Yeah, yeah definitely. And there's you know, for for me that like the idea of like actual like lightning bright lights like those those kinds of encounters are um less common for me than like small things and there's there have been a lot of like you're gonna be okay i'm gonna have this person call you right now you're gonna get this email right at this moment while you're thinking this other thought a affirmations lot of, yeah a lot of that has happened like Oh, it looks like this gig actually isn't coming through. Wait, let me check my email. Oh, there's the confirmation. Great. <laughs> mm. Those kinds of things, especially for the life of a freelancer in this time period, those are mini miracles for me. Mm. Oh. Ben, can you top that one? <laughs> no, of course I'm I can't. I'm kidding, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. Don't feed into that achievement-oriented <laughs> I just had a spiritual experience right now as a result of that, oh, that moment of awareness. Thank you. There you go. Uh, no, I think it's just being, you know, being alone with myself, you know, um, which, you know, we talked about this before. Esther, you know, just traveling so much and my life being so hectic that finally having to be in one geographical physical location and being still, you know, like to me that, that, that was a spiritual thing. And, and the first few weeks of quarantine, I felt that. And then the last few weeks as things have opened up, I've, I've lost it. Now I'm, because of the numbers, I'm locking down again. The last two days I've been at home and I felt it again. Oh, awesome. A little bit, yeah. Imagine, yeah. What about you, Esther? Oh yeah, I mean, I I already explained this in my the first episode of our uh, fake podcast. But you know, Andrew, I got Corona. COVID. What? I actually got COVID. Okay. <laughs> and it was a total spiritual experience for me getting this virus. Huh. Um, well, because it was one of those moments of like just complete surrendering because again, you just didn't know what you were experiencing. And of course I have to shout out my mom cause it was that moment of like my mom just calling me out of, you know, that's what parents have just like antenna that is just somehow like shoots up when they sense something and, um, and she called me out of the blue and was just like, she's like, are you okay? Like, how, how are you doing? You know, she, mind, mind you, she never calls like, cause she doesn't have Wi-Fi. And right. I was like, oh, I think I'm sick. I, you know, I have Corona. And immediately her answer was, this is God's way. 
of making you um, like come closer to him. Like that was just her exact reaction. That was it. Like, and it was that, that was all I needed. It wasn't like, oh, I suggest you take Tylenol or any of these like medical advice. Mind you, she's also a nurse. Her first thing was, oh, this was God's way of, of you know, bringing you back. And I was like. This week's podcast Amen. brought to you by God. <laughs> and Ted. Ted and God. No Ted, no Ted. Okay, well. Or related to. <laughs> well, this was really good. I, don't, I mean, catching up and you know, just going deep and thanks for dropping some knowledge, Andrew. Yeah. Whatever, whatever I said, I have no idea. We'll, we'll hear it on the rewind <laughs> on Apple podcasts. Absolutely. Lovely. Available on Spotify and other participating. <laughs> we'll put it on the show notes, put it in the show notes. <laughs> um, all right. Well, thanks guys. And I will hopefully physically see some of you guys soon maybe crossing fingers sounds good all right bye thank you